This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Maybe we should ask ChatGPT to write the federal budget. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, is the highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio, who, by the way, knows the best sushi restaurant in Manhattan, but she will not tell you. Good to see you, Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Great to be with you. Maybe I'll reveal it on the next uh, episode. We shall see. Or we can get input from the listeners. We could. I wonder if it'll make the list. Yeah. I wonder who will make the list. That'd be interesting. We'll Send us your best sushi restaurant. Great to be here. <laughs> also returning to the roundup is Andy Kroll. Andy is an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, politics, and threats to democracy. He's the former Washington bureau chief for Rolling Stone magazine, where he wrote extensively about the Seth Rich case. He's also written for Mother Jones, National Journal, and the California Sunday Magazine. And by the way, he's also the author of A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. Andy and I had a great discussion about that book that he released on September 14th. You can go back and listen to that on the Politicology feed if you'd like. Andy, as always, great to see you. Welcome back. I don't know if I can participate until I learn what the sushi restaurant is. I need some <laughs> some some foodie intel here as a sushi obsessive. But yes, maybe it is we'll great take to a trip back. up to see uh, see Susan for some sushi. Susan, spill the beans. On this week's roundup, the evolving story about President Biden's lawyers discovering classified documents in his former office and Wilmington home, and the lack of transparency from the White House. Then we'll discuss the looming fight over raising the debt limit and a more sensible alternative Republicans could take, could, emphasis, could take to lower spending. Next up, we'll dive into the AI chatbot taking the world by storm and how it could make our lives easier and what it could do to our politics. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss Marjorie Taylor Greene telling Fox she's moved on from QAnon, blaming the internet for her past support of Q and... Andy's forte, 
how viral conspiracy theories are hurting democracy. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. And there are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. And there you can get a link that you can use to listen to any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen to us in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology show and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. Okay, last Monday, CBS News broke the story that days before the midterm election last November, President Biden's personal lawyers found several classified documents from the Obama era while they packed up Biden's former office at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. After the initial news broke that the documents were discovered, the White House confirmed the accuracy of that report. And then on Wednesday, several news sources reported that a second set of documents was found at President Biden's Delaware home. And all of this we talked about uh, last week. Those sets we talked about last week. But now we know that the second set of documents was discovered on December 20th in the garage of President Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, So when the White House confirmed the CBS story about the first set of documents, they made no mention of the second batch they discovered in Delaware. They only acknowledged that set after the news broke. Two days after CBS News broke the story, Biden's personal attorneys conducted searches in, in, in his homes in Wilmington and Rehoboth Beach, and they found one additional classified document in Wilmington. Then on Thursday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters that the search was complete. And two days following that, on Saturday, White House lawyer Richard Sauber said he had found five more pages at Biden's Wilmington home on Thursday when he was working with DOJ officials to hand over that additional document. Uh, we still don't know a ton about what's actually in the documents because they're classified, of course, other than the fact that they are records from Biden's time as vice president. Uh, Although CNN did report that they contained uh, briefing materials on topics including Ukraine, Iran, and the United Kingdom. Last Thursday, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel, Robert Hur, to oversee the investigations of the Biden documents. Hur is a longtime prosecutor uh, who served as the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland from 2018 to 21 at the appointment of former President Trump. And we're still not entirely sure what legal jeopardy, if any, President Biden could be in. Um, But Susan, why don't we focus first on the calm strategy? Uh, Because one one major uh, criticism, I think, fair criticism of the Biden administration is that they did not get out ahead of this when they really could have avoided at least one of the four drips here of additional information. Um, you know, what did you make of their decision not to admit the second discovery at Biden's home, even after the CBS story broke and they acknowledged it? And, you know, the thing that's most troubling to me is what did you make of the revelation that they knew about this months ago before the election and chose to sit on it until CBS broke the story in December? So when the White House commented on the CBS story, they knew two things. They knew that they, when they found out about the classified records, that it was going to be, it had to become a story that it was a week before the 2022 midterm elections. And they also knew there was a second set of documents that were found. How they can come out and talk about the first set without setting up the circumstance for everything else is 
criminal negligence in communications. <laughs> I shouldn't say criminal in this day and age. So let me <laughs> At least not in this, this context. Way. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go back for a minute. <laughs> not having a clear-cut strategy to address those two issues is really a disaster from a comms strategy point of view. Because it's this White House, the Biden White House, that has promised to be so transparent. They have been promising to give voters, and not voters, but the American public, the information required. It was also a really bad issue to kind of muck up on because of where it stood with Donald, things stood with Donald Trump. And instead of setting the record straight, as far as at least the timeline, which is all they had to do, this was a timeline issue that they could have given and they could have declined to comment on anything else because it is classified records. But they decided to say, this is nothing like Donald Trump. So don't look at us. Look at how Donald Trump handled it. Donald Trump, I think most people think borders, if not because I'm not a lawyer, criminal. He defied requests from the National Archives for records that belong to the National Archives that did not belong to them. We have a paper trail of all of this. We have warrants that have been signed. We have reports. We, we have Donald Trump's own words. So we kind of know what happened there. We actually don't really know what happened with Joe Biden yet. We have the word of his attorneys, which I'm not saying we have to question, but we've seen no paper trail on this. We will have to wait until the investigator is concluded because I have a lot of questions. Like if I was the National Archives after Donald Trump, I would ask every living president to please review your records and ensure that there were no classified documents in them. And it could have been an honest mistake, which I do believe with Joe Biden, it, it most likely was. But what was the impetus to get Biden to start looking everywhere? There, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. I do feel bad for the um, White House press secretary, Karine Jean, um, Jean-Pierre, because having been in that situation, well, not being the White House press secretary, but my guess is she wasn't given all the information. And she had to drip, drip it out and had to have reporters. And I can't wait to hear what Andy has to say about this um, and had to have reporters kind of come back to her and say, well, you said this yesterday. Now you're saying it today. So I, I wouldn't criticize necessarily what happened from the podium as much as I would the um, the internal uh, brains of the operation in Biden land. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think that's fair. And I'm I'm. I'm not a fan of uh, KJP in general. Just I don't. I just don't think she's good at the job in general. But I think in this case, it's a very, very difficult position to be put in when uh, when the information's so sensitive and she's probably not getting it um, because on the communications front, right, um, there has to be a raging battle going on right now within the White House between the comm staff and the lawyers. One group definitely wants to say something. The other group definitely doesn't want to say anything, especially now that there's an ongoing investigation and um, and she's in the middle of that. Right. Um, and only one person has to go in front of that podium. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And nobody else wants to. Uh, so, Andy, uh, so one of the things I've been frustrated by is um, how much of the news media, it, w when the story broke, sort of immediately sprang into spin mode almost to explain what Biden did was close to a nothing burger because what Trump did was so much worse uh, before we even really knew the facts and still don't know the facts of the Biden case, including what's even in the documents. And so I wonder 
how you read that, how you've read sort of the coverage of this from a from a journalist's vantage point, um, and then more broadly about the the story itself. I had a similar reaction, to be quite honest. After that first CBS story, and then I think maybe the next iteration of the story, whether that was the first set of documents found at the house or whatever the next sort of beat was there, there was not only a tripping over themselves kind of pattern happening in the media about how this was different, the Biden story was different from the Trump story, but there was also then layered on top of that uh, pundits, op-ed writers, you know, some left of center journalists then applauding and, you know, really elevating, amplifying that coverage, not specifically looking at the story itself, but looking at the kind of meta story, how this was different, why it's not the same, false equivalency all over again. I even saw some references to the quote unquote Hillary Clinton email scandal that, you know, the political media, the white, the Washington press corps should not make more out of this Biden story than what it supposedly is or what these people were claiming that it is. They're falling into the Hillary's email, Hillary emails trap all over again. That seemed so premature. That seemed so, uh, I mean, it was spin in some corners and just prejudging the story before we even knew what was going on. And you don't have to be uh, super deeply sourced into this story. You don't have to be a particularly savvy uh, analyst of of crises like this to know that there's always more there. This is one drip. There are more drips to come. Just look at literally any White House scandal of the last 10, 20, 50 years. It's never just the one thing in the beginning. And so it was really surprising. And uh, I specifically remember at one point scrolling through Twitter, again, I think after this sort of second beat of the story and shutting it off and thinking, God, this is, I mean, I, I feel like I am always trying to check myself and not um, get too either wrapped up in one side or the other and just go at the facts, go at the news. But even I was like, man, there is a really uh, uh, an element of kind of herd mentality here trying to minimize what this, what this story is. Um, and, you know, getting to this, your second question, I felt that way because we are so in the dark about so much of this story right now. We know that there are, were four different days where documents were found in two different places, though I guess two different places at the Wilmington house. So I guess three, the garage, the library in Wilmington, and then the Penn Biden Center here in D.C., but we don't really know what those documents said. Some vague reporting from CNN, as you mentioned, about foreign nations and briefings related to those nations. We really don't know the key information here, which is how did those documents end up in those places? Who took them there? Did the then vice president, Joe Biden, take them there? Did Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who was running the Penn Biden Center for a period of time? Did he take them there? In which case, now we've got a whole nother federal agency, the State Department getting pulled into this through its leader, Blinken. And the classic, what did they know and when did they know it? Not just what did they know, when did they know it about the discovery of these documents, certainly around the, the, the timing on the last election raises eyebrows and is newsworthy, but also what did they know, when did they know it about these documents ending up in 
the Penn Biden Center think tank end in Wilmington. I mean, there's so much we don't know about this now. And so to be saying we that, that this is- We know when it was reported, but we don't know right, when it happened. Right, right. And there's so much more to know there about what when it, when it actually happened and who was involved. So just try to like already get out ahead of this and say, hey, you know, this isn't a big deal. This is not like what Trump did. It is different in some ways, but we don't know the extent of that because we just don't know enough about what has actually happened here. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, I would add one other thing that we don't know, which is regardless of who took them from these places and put them there, uh, in the intervening years, who had access right. to them? Because, you know, there multiple locations, three, two, however you want to count the locations, but, uh, you know, in President Biden's uh, defense that at least one of the sets of documents were in a, the trunk of a Corvette, uh, like, that doesn't sound very secure to me. And if they were sitting there for years, uh, who else had access to the garage who could have been rummaging? You know, we just don't know any of this. Um, and of course, we will hear questions about whether or not his son had access to any of these documents. And, um, and, 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 and especially just to, to Andy's. Yeah. Yeah, just to Andy's point, I want to say, you know, remember what happened with Donald Trump. It wasn't an initial search for classified documents. They wanted the records back because it was the people's them. records. Yeah. He had too many. They, they were not looking. It wasn't like, oh, my God, we've got to go get those classified records back because that would have been a different law enforcement agency coming much sooner had they known there were classified records, you know, if, if Trump had those records. So. I, I think it's also just important to remember what we don't that we don't know a lot because Trump ended up with a lot of classified records and didn't want to give them back. We don't know what happened with Biden. But here's the biggest takeaway for me when I look at it as kind of like what the American public and politically where the story ends up boiling down to is as of now, this statement I believe to be true. Former President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden are both under investigation by DO, by special counsels for the handling of classified documents. Yeah, full stop. Full stop. That's it. And, that, and, and really, you that's all we know. You can make that comparison. Those, yeah, you can. And those, um, and, and those investigations will be going on for quite a while. Remember that the Mullen investigation took two years, and that was lightning best, right, for that kind of investigation. This is going to be going on for a while. And so last week I asked our panel, um, the, the, one of the first questions that came to mind, which was, geez, you know, with Biden supposed to be announcing his run for president right around the corner, this has to throw a wet blanket on that announcement or even potentially the decision to run, given that Donald Trump is the only other person uh, announced in, you know, in the race so far. And uh, Mike Pesca dismissed that concern as, uh, as, you know, recency bias. Susan, as a strategist, how do you read, if you're, if you're like the campaign side of the Biden operation, not necessarily in the White House, right, but you're thinking about the, the, the big rollout of the campaign announcement that was just around the corner and now you got this hanging around your neck and it's not going away for years, right? These investigations will take a long time. How does this impact the decision to the timeline for the decision to announce and or the decision to announce at all? Well, I would put the issue itself as like a two, maybe for Trump, for Biden legally, but at about an eight politically uh, for the Biden administration or Biden camp, re-election campaign. It definitely threw um, 
a wrench into the whole process. Let's not forget until a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the good ride Biden had been having. He was still coming off high off of the 2022 midterm elections. Things were moving in, in the right direction. We've, we've gotten some information recently that inflation seems to be ticking down a little. That would be great news. That takes away a lot of the sting that the Republicans can go after Biden and Democrats on. Now you have this, and this is all that people need to be talking about from the Republican side because they will weaponize it as an issue and they will not play fair like the Democrats. Let's be clear. Whatever the Democrats have said against um, Donald Trump. Now, I do think there are those who go overboard. Don't get me wrong. They definitely do. It's nothing in comparison to what Republicans will do to Biden over this. I mean, pretty soon you're going to have something like space aliens came in and dropped <laughs> off the records and Hunter Biden was zoomed up to the you know, spacecraft. Like it's going to get really wacky, especially when you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene involved in some of these investigations. But it, I think it changed the, the idea of when he was going, when Biden was going to announce his reelection. And I think he needs to get some good news. He's got to have a change of the story. So the investigation actually now taking place is sort of a good thing, as long as nothing else comes out between now and when the investigation's over, because there won't be any news. The biggest problem for the administration right now is the drip, drip, drip of news. They need to shut it down. At this point, even though I believe in transparency and I think it was fumbled, they have to refer everything to the president's lawyers or to DOJ. DOJ is saying, well, they can talk about it. No, just say we're not doing it. We're, we're, we're sitting in the you know Oval Office. We're not getting involved in their investigation in any shape or form. Take the lumps for not talking about it, because when they do, the lumps are way worse. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, can you speak to the news piece of this and how you, you know, um, right now it's so fresh. There are so many questions we don't have answers to, but continuing to ask questions for which we will not have answers for a while is going to get old to journalists in the press corps. Right. And so how do you think outside of the Republican, uh, investigations committee now, which is what Mike Murphy called it, uh, uh, how, how does the news piece of this evolve given that we're just not going to have very much official information, I suppose, other than what the committee actually turns up in evidence, right? If, because they do have subpoena power. So I suppose that's a way to keep the story going. But you read that. Well, I think about covering the Mueller investigation when I think about this question. I mean, I followed the Mueller investigation for as long as it, from the moment it was started and, and until the, till the very end when Robert Mueller testified in front of Congress, in some ways, the appointment of a special counsel, it makes our jobs as reporters a lot harder. And I think it actually, the news value, the news uh, production, if you could say, I mean, just the stuff coming out that we would be reporting on actually dwindles quite a bit because it sort of falls behind the veil of the Justice Department and attorney-client privilege, law enforcement privilege, the story up to this point, up to the appointment of special counsel Robert Hur, who is now overseeing the Biden documents case, before then, you know, you it, it's sort of a live issue. And there are sources that you can go to to ask about things. There are people in Biden world writ large that you can ask this, you know, try, try to get information from. But 
when it goes into the Justice Department, it goes into the special counsel process, it almost kind of falls silent in a way that makes it a lot harder to report on. I think that that, in a weird way, plays into the hands of the congressional Republicans, the Oversight Committee especially, maybe Judiciary as well for obvious reasons, because they have a little more of the stage to themselves now. The Justice Department is not going to be issuing weekly or even daily press releases about the status of this investigation, but you can bet Jim Jordan and James Comer and everyone else will if they can, and I'm sure that they will find a way to. So it becomes a weirder story to cover, and you have to you have to be a little more, um, you always got to be skeptical, but certainly skeptical when the congressional Republicans are the ones who are you know, the loudest on the subject. The other big piece of this that I want to know, getting a little bit to what Susan was talking about a second yeah. ago, you know, I kind of want to get out. I mean, I kind of want the campaign to start, honestly, because I kind of want to get out onto the trail, get out to events and ask people about these two special counsel investigations. Um, you know, I, I, do they cancel each other out? Do they just become white noise to someone in South Carolina or Iowa or New Hampshire, Texas, wherever? Uh, I just don't quite have a sense. I don't have a feel for this issue outside of the beltway right now yeah. where obviously here it is you know white hot and yeah. it feels like this issue is is the the issue right now along with some stuff in congress um but i don't have a i don't have a feel for it with with just average people outside and maybe they shrug their shoulders and say one guy did it the other guy did it we don't trust any of them anyway who cares or maybe they say we thought that biden was above this and now he's been sort of brought back down to earth a bit more, a bit closer to where former President Trump was. I just don't have that that sense yet. So uh, maybe that's the reason. Maybe I want Biden to yeah. announce now then so I can start doing <laughs> events and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Find out. A plea yeah. for more campaign events. You never heard me say that before. <laughs> Great point. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the debt ceiling, which, by the way, just as a like tweet length primer, uh, in case you are uninitiated to the politics of the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling is uh, the the maximum limit allowed by law for the government to borrow to pay the bills it's already incurred. Okay, so all of the drama you hear about the, the, the debt ceiling, this has everything to do with borrowing to pay for things we've already agreed to pay for. Okay, that's really just important level set in case you have misunderstood uh, or been misinformed about the debt ceiling. So let's start there. Last Friday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the United States could default on its debt as soon as June, setting the stage for potential major battle in the Republican-controlled House. So uh, she wrote a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and said that the U.S. will reach its debt limit on January 19th, which is today, the day we are recording. So you will hear this tomorrow on the 20th. Uh, and that the Treasury Department will take extraordinary measures, quote-unquote, to pay its bills. Uh, Yellen wrote that it's unlikely that the government will run out of cash and the extraordinary measures before June, uh, but she did urge Congress to act in a timely manner. McCarthy reportedly made a commitment uh, to hold up an increase of the debt limit in exchange for spending cuts from Democrats as part of his negotiations to get the Speaker's gavel. Politico is reporting that House Republicans are insisting on major spending cuts before they'll raise the debt ceiling. And Democrats have patently refused to even engage the idea. Last week, uh, White House Press Secretary 
the White House press secretary told reporters they will not be negotiating. Um, McCarthy agreed that the House GOP wouldn't lift the debt limit unless Congress cuts at least $130 billion in federal spending next fiscal year or takes on broader fiscal reforms to limit the debt, including calls for a balanced budget within a decade. Uh, It's also worth noting that because Republicans haven't ironed out exactly who's going to be on which committees, they haven't even begun concrete discussions about what their potential demands are. Um, and in a column for the Dispatch this week, Jonah Goldberg, who is who is becoming, again, one of my favorite writers, wrote that opposition to raising the debt limit is more about fighting against President Biden than it is about addressing spending, that, quote, these new deficit hawks aren't opposed to racking up debt, they just want to be the ones doing it. So after the protracted speaker fight, right, all eyes are going to be back on the House. Um, and if the goal really is to grab the mic, the question is, how do you expect these negotiations to play out? Um, so on, let's start there. There's a lot more to dig into on this topic, especially when it comes to you know serious attempts to actually uh, cut spending in a responsible way. But let's start there. How do you expect the negotiations themselves to play out? Um, Susan, do you want to lead off? Sure. Um, I do think the White House will kind of step back a little bit and let the Senate and the House Democrats lead this fight because it's just easier for them, frankly, um, to, to not be directly involved because Biden has one thing going for him. Everyone knows he wants to negotiate everything like he is willing to go bipartisan. He has that street cred from the last two years. He's done a lot of bipartisan legislation. So it's hard to believe that people, you know, people are say, well, Biden refused to come to the table. It doesn't make sense. Now, when you look at the speaker's race, <laughs> It makes a lot of sense to say, wow, the Republicans are in complete disarray. That is something the public has seen. So the Republicans are kind of going in tainted into this process as they can't get their act together. Um, If I were the Democrats, I would say, all right, well, to use your analogy, you want us you don't want to give us a higher credit card limit, but you still have to pay what you what you charged. But when you're making your future. Tell us what you want to cut. Because if you go to defense, you're going to have half of the Republicans for it and half of it against it. Show me what you want to do. And I would put that pressure on them over and over and over again, because politically it it sets the tone for Republicans wanted to, you know, reduce your Medicare payment or Social Security or wherever it wanted to go. But the Republicans can't get past. We want to reduce spending. That's all of them can agree on that. They all can't agree on how to get there. And McCarthy has proven to be a puppet for those 20, 21, you know, uh, rebels, if you will. He's giving them everything they want. Once again, I will say this. There are at least 18, there are 18 Republicans that won in Biden districts. Their vote counts the same as the rebels. So Marjorie Taylor Greene's vote counts as much as Mike Lawler's vote. So stand up for yourselves. There's a lot more of you than there are of them. And you will survive your primaries over this. Andy, uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, um, you know, about how the negotiations will go. But I'd, I'd, I'd love to go a little more deeper into the substance here because, you know, Brian Riedel at the Dispatch also wrote this really terrific, really terrific column 
supporting a move to reduce spending and lowering, lowering the deficit if Republicans were actually serious about doing it. But the history of this fight, the history of uh, the, the, the problem of an out-of-control U.S. debt level is, uh, is that cutting spending and being responsible is overwhelmingly popular, but cutting specific things, when you actually get down to details, nothing is popular. And so nobody has the political appetite to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, there's this, uh, uh, great explanation of just how serious the situation is now, uh, put out by committee for responsible federal budget. Um, shout out to Maya McGinnis over there, um, who recently analyzed, uh, just this, just in January, uh, in, in order to achieve a balanced budget within a decade. So by 2032, 2033, uh, all spending would need to be cut by roughly one quarter and that the necessary cuts would grow to 85%. 85% of the federal budget you would have to cut if you wanted to get a balanced budget in 10 years if you left defense, veterans, Social Security, and Medicare spending completely untouched, left those off the table. They would be so large that it would require the equivalent of ending all non-defense appropriations and eliminating the entire Medicaid program just to get to balance. That's how far down we are in this hole that we've dug ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no political appetite to do it. Um, and so Brian is arguing that you should, you know, if Republicans are serious, they should go for some low-hanging fruit, a very modest approach to, uh, you know, getting some uh, bipartisan agreement on something like $400 billion in spending cuts over 10 years, that would be more fiscally responsible than holding the, uh, the U.S. economy hostage <laughs> over an increase to the debt ceiling with no detailed plan to do anything um, because nobody, nobody actually wants to sell that plan. So I just, with that as the backdrop, um, I wonder what you think about the substance here of actually making progress on, uh, on on, on reducing the, the, the debt and the deficit and, and getting to a, you know, more sustainable way of paying our bills. The one piece of that analysis by Maya McGinnis's group that stands out to me is calculating how we would get back to a balanced budget, but leaving aside not only huge healthcare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, but also defense spending. I mean, defense spending in the 15 years that I've worked as a reporter in D.C., it is the one subject that defies all laws of political, <laughs> fiscal, economic gravity. It only goes up. Nothing in Washington only goes up. Things go up, things go down. Power swings left, power swings right. And yet there is this one kind of spending, this one huge behemoth part of our government that is somehow untouchable. And we can we could talk for days about how that ha is a very specific strategy, putting all these different pieces of the defense production process scattered across every congressional district to keep that political support uh, and, and you know prevent defections, prevent no votes. What I've found interesting in the last couple of years, however, is seeing some voices on the right and voices on the left who have begun to question that orthodoxy, that defense spending only go, goes in one direction. Mm -hmm. Now, it is obviously in the DNA of this country to have a strong national defense. It is in the DNA of the country to see itself as a defender, both at home and abroad, of democratic values, of liberal 
not in the political, but in the broader sense, government, um, you know, a, a certain kind of uh, way of the world. I mean, clearly, we see ourselves in that, and there is a amount of money that it takes to to perpetuate that role. But at the same time, the number of stories about waste, fraud, and abuse, about you know, twenty first century fighter planes that only go up in value, that we they, they don't fly, but they cost hundreds of millions of dollars a piece. Clearly, there is room in the defense budget to start to chip away at some of these savings that we need, clearly that the country needs. And again, on the left and on the right, there are some very, very strange bedfellows who have come together saying, this is insane. We have to look a little more, uh, with a little more scrutiny at some of these defense programs. And the, the Pentagon can't pass an audit, has never passed an audit. Something is wrong here. Clearly, there's got to be something there. And I would say the same thing about Medicare and Medicaid as well. I mean, if you look at, as I have, because I'm such a cool person, government accountability <laughs> office reports about waste, fraud, and abuse in these yeah. huge programs. I mean, depending on uh, the kind of, you know, the, the piece of the program you're looking at, there are some estimates that there is one in every $3 is lost to waste, fraud, and abuse in Medicare. I mean, that is and Medicare, of course, is, is an enormous amount of money. So I feel like this question of where do you find this money, the money is there. And maybe the political will is not quite all the way there, but in, moving in that direction in interesting ways. Now, if you were to have some House Republicans today come forward and suggest, hey, maybe we don't need this new fighter jet that's costing us $500 million a pop, even if a hundred parts of that are made in a hundred different congressional districts. <laughs> Maybe there would be an interesting conversation. Um, I would love to to see that because I think that would be something new in this debt ceiling problem, in this federal spending problem. But I think for now, as you know, I've heard from sources what Susan alluded to, which was House Democrats are kind of waiting. Senate Democrats too are kind of waiting, thinking, okay, if you want to come to us with an offer or a kind of a, a, a larger deal here. We're all ears, but like, get your house in order first. We'll take you yeah. seriously when that moment comes. Yeah. Clearly, that moment has not come yet. Yeah. And, and can Excuse I just me. go back to one of the things you brought up about both sides um, on the left and on the right um, having this interest in cutting potentially defense spending? Is it an anti establishment thing? Are we seeing it mostly from members who kind of like running? against the party, against the system, who are more open to going against conventional behavior of the House and the Senate? I think it's a little bit that, that there is uh, an anti-establishment, anti-party orthodoxy strain running through some of these newly elected members. I also think it is, in a weird way, kind of a symptom of this more nationalistic drift of some parts of the Republican Party, a drift that um, former President Trump obviously amped up a bit, where there it's kind of a classic, like, why are we doing nation building abroad when we should be doing nation building at home? Why are we, you know, it's sort of tied up with this almost like anti-imperialist worldview that has been on the left for a long time, obviously. But is also creeping in in its own way in the on the far right. Um, I just don't know how seriously to take 
these people at this point, if there is any substance behind the posture, if there is any real solutions behind the tweets and the, you know, uh, chest puffery that you see. But it is, I mean, it, you know, t- 10 years ago, you know, you and Ron could both speak to this. I mean, 10 years ago, I don't think you would hear many Republicans at all talking about cutting defense spending. You do a little bit now, and I, I find that interesting. And, and I'm curious whether it will ever come up more in, as we start having these debt ceiling debates. Yeah. This is Molly McHugh's pincer, pincer of isolationism. She's, she's reprised uh, multiple times. Your dovetails with that conversation quite well. The, um, you know, I, it, I should have mentioned this at the, at the top of the segment, but it just occurred to me that, uh, you know, we are having this discussion about the seriousness of, uh, of the national debt and the, you know, manufactured crisis of the debt ceiling, uh, raising the debt ceiling. But I think what maybe doesn't get fair treatment in a lot of the coverage about this stuff, especially because it's so, you know, you know, flashpoint, um, is the actual serious reason for the spending fight in the first place. Like what are the stakes here? If we, if we continue down the path that we're on, right. And that is that we are barreling toward a tipping point, uh, that leaves the U S in, in, in what economists call a, a debt spiral or a debt trap, right. Which it, which is essentially that servicing the debt, think of it like paying the interest on a credit card that you've gone way, way crazy with, and you can only make the interest payments on. You can't even pay down the principal anymore. This is how people go bankrupt. Uh, think of it Think of it like that, right? It's a debt trap where you're servicing the debt, and in the federal budget, if you're spending more and more money servicing the debt, you have less and less available budget to spend on anything else, including infrastructure and education and climate change and and literally anything else. And so you reach this tipping point where the, where the financial situation continues to devolve rapidly because you weren't responsible in the first place. And so th- those are the stakes. That's why we're having a conversation about uh, about um, you know the uh, U.S.'s financial health in the first place. Ne- it's kind of like it covering the big. Into- it's kind of like yeah. covering the vig and hoping that China doesn't kneecap you. That's while exactly you're doing right. It. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's yeah. Um, yeah. And and before we leave this topic, I guess let me just briefly explain what the extraordinary measures are that the financial that the, that the Treasury Department is considering using uh, that have been floated. One is um, one one is the you know the minting of a trillion dollar coin or a bajillion dollar <laughs> coin for whatever it do, doesn't really matter. Uh, the Treasury could do something like that. It would be really weird. Uh, seems like it would be legal, uh, but it also sort of just, you know, you can't even say it with a straight face. How are you supposed to take this seriously? The, it sort of draws into stark contrast the uh, the distance between value and fiat currency and makes most people say, wait, hang on a second, where's this? Where's the value actually coming from, right? And then there's the idea of, uh, high yield bonds, which was uh, really well explained by both Matt Levine at Bloomberg and, and Matt Iglesias, uh, which is essentially that the bonds that the Treasury Department issues when it is uh, creating uh, debt uh, could be issued instead of with a you know normal amount of interest could be you know like a you know twenty for thirty percent forty percent interest yield on the bonds that you're buying, which would uh, which would allow them to pay their bills. Um, without actually violating the law because the debt ceiling uh, statutes uh, apply to the principal, not the interest that is gained by high yield bonds. I hope I'm I'm doing that um, 
justice. But those are the things that if this negotiation fails or if for whatever reason Republicans do hold the the thing hostage and they do shut down the government, those are those are tools at the Treasury Department's disposal. Um, I think we've exhausted this. Is there any, anything else we should um, make clear to listeners? Because this is a pretty wonky subject that is not going to get very good uh, coverage, I think, for the most part on mainstream At the end of news. the day, the Republicans will fold because they can't be responsible for this having it. It's, this happening, yeah. but, but how far are they willing to go in between? That's the right. Question. If you thought the speaker's race was a circus <laughs> of a spectacle, <laughs> imagine something along those lines, the same characters, except the full faith and credit of the United States is on the line, not just Kevin McCarthy's <laughs> boundless ambitions to have the gavel this i mean i think this could be on the one hand a chance for a real conversation potentially about spending and where to cut it but is that optimistic almost certainly it could also just be an absolute train wreck like the speaker's vote was with the full faith and credit of the of our government on the line so uh, yeah brace yourselves Chat GPT is an AI technology that is trained to understand and generate human language. This makes it highly versatile and useful in a wide range of applications such as customer service, personal assistance, and language translation. It is considered disruptive because it has the ability to change the way we interact with machines and computers by understanding the nuances and subtleties of human speech and responding in a natural and human-like way. And during our editorial meeting yesterday, it also wrote the explanation I just read to you of what ChatGPT is <laughs> and when we asked it in plain language. Well played, okay? sir. Well played. <laughs> CNET, the popular tech news outlet, has begun publishing articles written entirely by ChatGPT. The New York Times reported this week about college students using ChatGPT to write papers. It's actually changing... Uh, the way some faculty teach writing in the first place. And Andy's like cringing in horror right now. The Washington Post published an article showing how to use ChatGPT, wait for it, to write a let him down easy text after a first date. Oh Axios reported gosh. that ChatGPT recently passed all three parts of the U.S. medical licensing examination, although just barely as part of a research experiment. And they also note that over time, ChatGPT and other AI could be used to make clinical diagnoses and healthcare decisions. So this shit's real and it's serious with enormous complications uh, and consequences. So uh, we could go in a hundred different directions here, but uh, blue skies first, how did you both react uh, to seeing the news about ChatGPT, which, you know, by the way, for our listeners, if you're not familiar yet, this has been evolving for a while now, um, and we're just now talking about it. Susan, what do you think? Well, there, there's a lot for, to process here as someone of the over 50 crowd. And I'm like, really? They can do all this now? I sound like, you know, <laughs> my grandmother. But I also kind of wondered, you know, I remember being really upset when my nephews basically said they didn't have to learn how to spell anymore because they did all their work on a computer and all you have to do is hit autocorrect. Like they didn't have spelling tests the way you you used to. So I think we will eventually catch up to this. 
But um, someone very close to me teaches in Canada and he teaches Indigenous studies, introduced Indigenous studies. And a lot of the students are English as a second language uh, from overseas, not necessarily Indigenous. And he started seeing some of it because he saw that the, the fluency of the, the assignments that he was getting was just a little too good. <laughs> but what he noticed, which was more, which, which really concerned him, was there's a bias built into this. Because it's collecting data, um, especially when it comes in, I read a little bit more about it um, in the article you sent around, Ron, in, in Insider, is that there's a regressive bias in this because the, a lot of data is old and how we we put what we put in, it's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. And it's there is a bias built in there and it really does hurt in subject matters that maybe there's not a lot of um, vast um, information on or perspectives. So he is particularly concerned about that, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, that's one of the major, uh, major, you know, controversies over ChatGPT. Yes, but AI just in general is mm -hmm. is uh, biased, and we've seen this in you know facial recognition software being biased against darker skinned people because it's they just don't have as many. Uh, we call them observations when you're training a machine learning model. Uh, the, the data point is called an observation. So a single face would be an observation for the for the machine to learn how to recognize faces like that. And uh, and so this is a major major controversy in in, in tech circles. Which Andy, I'm sure you're sort of very well versed in uh, in all of this, given your research. So, um, I'm and I'm sure you've been watching ChatGPT for a while now. So, how are how are you to, in general reading the landscape of how disruptive it has been? Um, and and maybe you can speak to some of the the bigger controversies uh, that are that are brewing around the use of this technology in various industries. I'm obsessed with this story. I am. Terrified of this story, I am thrilled by it. I mean, I just there's like a very, very long German word yeah. that that must mean all the things that I feel about Chat GPT <laughs> and OpenAI um, because it's just we're, we're at such an interesting moment with it right now. Where you know it is out, it is widely accessible, but we are only just beginning to understand what it does and how it works. The how it works part, I I feel like the reporting on ChatGPT needs to be far deeper and 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 much more accessible and understandable for a lay audience. We're at this. We're doing it again. We did this with social media, and now we're doing it with accessible AI tools. Where the Uses of the tool, the novelties of it, oh, cool, look at this, or like, oh, my God, worst case scenario, have outrun just our basic understanding of what it is we're talking about, what it is this thing does and why it does. I mean, I was talking to a very smart, well-educated, well-employed friend here in D.C. We were talking about ChatGPT, and I said, well, you know, these, these tools are only as sophisticated as the sets that they're trained on. And my friend said, "What do you mean trained on? What what does what does that even what do you, what does that even mean?" I said, "Well, the, you know, it, like Susan said, I mean, what you put in is what you get what you get out, and 
these tools have essentially scoured as much publicly available knowledge, quote unquote, on the internet, books, images, stories, anything that it can get with words that it can put in. And then the vast amount of computing power that we have now, which is really what makes ChatGPT possible, distills all that, trains on it, and then draws on all of these disparate pieces of it. When you say, I want you to write me uh, the first 10 pages of the Bible, but as written by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in the style of Frankenstein. And you can do that and it will do that. And it is really, really good, but people don't understand really why cool. you can do that. And yeah. so I do think that the coverage of this needs to pause, take a breath and say, we need to explain to the public how this actually works, why this actually works, where the information comes from, and why, in a lot of cases, it does show this regressive view. It does produce, uh, it does have biases, you know, and, and that is the biases that are reflective of all the data that it's lumped in for as far back as it can find going backward on the internet. Um, I, I, I just feel like the same thing happened with, say, Facebook, where Facebook came out, they rolled it out, we all rushed to get on it because it was the hot new thing, but we didn't really understand how Facebook worked. We certainly didn't understand when Facebook pivoted from a cool online social networking thing to an advertising platform, which is essentially what it is now. We got to have that moment for for AI or else we're going to, in five or 10 years, end up in the same kind of moment we're in now where the the problems of social media, the, the, the tension, the conflict that it can create is going to be coming up with AI in, the, in a very similar way. And we won't understand why we'll be playing catch up. We are just simply not equipped as a culture, as, a, as an information-consuming society to deal with the ramifications that we're, that we're, of the technology that we're creating. It's just outpacing our capacity to right. keep up with it. And I don't even just mean from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, like, individual people have no idea the, the impact uh, this technology is already having on their lives. And, uh, and especially when you think about the medical implications mm. here, uh, it's just really, you know, you know, last week I, I talked with Danny Hogenkamp uh, from Grassroots Analytics. It's a big um, uh, democratic data firm that deals with um, helping, helping democratic candidates and campaigns uh, find new donors and, and raise money. One of the things we talked about is that campaigns are already using AI to write fundraising emails. Uh, and so, and, and considered, and, and Danny's actually opposed to this practice because he thinks there's something far more, uh, sort of effective about, uh, about human, like, and, and actually candidates writing their own fundraising emails. But there are firms now that are using this kind of AI to write fundraising emails and they're, op they're being optimized for, um, you know, what, what actually converts the most. And what we know is that if you, if you use fear, the, if, if you, if you ramp up the fear through, you know, to 11, you're going to get higher open rates. You're going to get higher click rates. You're going to get higher conversion rates because, you know, the world ending is on the line and that's what the AIs will be trained to do. Um, so it, it, it's just, um, it's really alarming. I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this when it comes to bias. Uh, uh, you know, we were testing it out the other day. Uh, ChatGPT told us it wouldn't write an attack ad against Donald Trump or Joe Biden as a quote unquote responsible AI. Uh, it also <laughs> wouldn't write a story about how Donald Trump won the 2020 election, but it would write us ads about why inflation is hurting Americans and uh, highlighting why infrastructure spending is good. 
It even wrote us short speeches in the voices of Aaron Sorkin and former President Barack Obama and endorsement of Liz Cheney in the voice of Hillary Clinton, right? So imagine ima- imagine what is possible here. Maybe in plus, I'll read you one of the ads that it came up with. It's actually, it's actually really funny, but yeah. Any uh, closing thoughts, Susan? Uh, like we, I, I could spend hours and hours talking about this and I'm sure that it's going to be a recurring uh, theme that we explore, but um, what do you, you know, wh- how do you imagine, um, God, I don't even know. I don't even know what to ask. I, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a technology person, <laughs> um, but the thing I, that kept coming back into my head as Andy was speaking was, so how are people going to know how does it how do you self-identify that this came from this kind of from this kind of program from AI? Like or if you're if you're getting in the medical industry, if I read something, you know, that on a site that looks like WebMD and it kind of sounds like WebMD, but it's not, but it's so close. You know, like how do you find fault? You know, what's and then of course I was thinking as you were speaking, Ron, like, all right, so like we're all ill-equipped to like kind of deal with this, but you know, who's even probably more ill-equipped than me is like our elected officials. Congress, exactly (laughs) right. So, I mean, it scares me that they're still trying to figure out Facebook and not dealing with the, the, the newest issue at hand. And I, I don't, I don't know what kind of public awareness, if there should be any, like I, I, I'm just at a loss of what to do with it or how to handle it. Or does it just become, like I said earlier, is it like having, you know, spell check and people don't know how to spell words anymore? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I think we're entering a whole new world. I think it goes deeper than that. Um, Because when I think about a person's inability to distinguish a story or, or a fundraising email, Distinguish written by a human or written by AI. It, it, or a deep. Well, that's exactly. You, you just you just stole my line, Ron. How dare you? Oh, really? You? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Go I was going to say <laughs> we, we we are reaching this point where the 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 amount of and really it is it's 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 the the not just the engineering capacity of humans but the computing power to make to 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 be able to train on huge sets that the OpenAI ChatGPT tool trains on this is the same kind of problem or i shouldn't say problem necessarily but this is the same kind of issue that deep fakes bring up again it's this huge amount of computing power that allows you to create a synthetic video a fake video that looks so much like the original that you cannot tell the difference and i think that i mean i have seen some deep fake videos that are basically there they are almost indistinguishable. You cannot see the seams. It doesn't kind of click anywhere or skip or anything like that. You're getting there with ChatGPT. And the other one that we haven't talked about in the same vein is, and this feels like a very live issue right now, is the AI technology to create images, art, graphics, photos. I mean, there was yes. a fascinating piece mm. in the Times a couple of weeks ago by a graphic artist who was already not only seeing replications of her work and fearing for a future when, you know, art directors, uh, editors at magazines, publications, magazines, quaint notion, uh, just use AI because it's so easy. But also what did those 
visual AI programs train themselves on. They trained on all of the images already online, which includes the work of actual humans. So not only are you drawn, I mean, there's something so poetically cruel about this, that you've trained the tool that is going to potentially replace artists in the future with, you train that tool with their own art. With their work. Yeah. We are, we are at a point where all of these things are starting to come together. I'm not going crazy and saying it's all connected, but yeah. th- these things are all yeah. converging no, 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 it, with it, this in, in, in the technology. It yeah, it's is. happening now. And, and again, yeah. we, you know, the, the, the gerontocracy in Congress seems absolutely out to lunch, clueless about this yeah. issue if they're aware of it at all. But again, getting back to my earlier point, if we do not have a discussion Literacy campaigns, legislation, though, I don't want to always reach for that as the answer, but real action now on this, then the horse will have left the barn. We will be catching up, never catching up to that, and and we will be in a particularly difficult place. Yeah. Maybe we should ask ChatGPT to write the federal budget. <laughs> Where would you cut ChatGPT? That's actually an interesting question. Uh, exactly. That's a great question. I love that. We are barely up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, uh, but let's talk about what we are watching above the radar, below the radar. Um, what do you got for us, Andy? My eyes are on Florida. I-, I am trying to decide what I think, how I feel, where to go with Governor Ron DeSantis. I mean, we're it's obviously we've we've just finished a midterm election. As a political reporter, my eyes turn toward for better or worse, the next election, I wonder, uh, Ron DeSantis, what is he doing to lay the groundwork? I've been starting to watch more of his uh, events, speeches, you know, public appearances. What I'm curious to find out, and I, I would love to know what the two of you think about this, have you covered so many Trump rallies over the years to the detriment of my mental and physical health? Uh, you know, those... I always thought that as bizarre and uh, strange as those rallies were, Trump was an entertainer. He, you know, he was funny. The people loved being there. It felt like some kind of, not even just a rally, but also like weird political stand-up. And, you know, I get why people liked going to these things. Ron DeSantis is not an entertaining guy. Ron DeSantis is by all indications, not a compelling guy just from watching him. Um, I just wonder how, speaking of training people, I wonder how much of the Republican base is trained now on political candidates who not just say the right things, uh, you know, hit the right fear nodes, stoke the right anxieties, but also they, they feel like they're entertained. They feel like they're part of this performance. You just don't get that from DeSantis, even though he does say you know, some of the quote unquote right things. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated to see if he runs. Is it that the Republican base is tired of the performance and the entertainment and is happy to go back to, um, you know, the way kind of candidates were before? Or do they get in front of this guy DeSantis and he, you know, pulls a Jeb Bush or something and they're like, this doesn't put on a yeah, show. Yeah, this is, this yeah. is boring. Like this guy is not interesting yeah. at all. So I don't know. Florida is my, is my new fixation, I guess is the way to put it. 
Yeah, yeah it kind of makes you one. wonder is do do people want Trump without the baggage and without the personality? <laughs> I mean, is that Trump if you don't have his baggage and you don't have his personality? So <laughs> that's a really good point that Andy <laughs> makes, I think. <laughs> Susan, what are you watching? I am watching, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but Mitch McConnell. Mm. Mitch oh. McConnell has been very quiet the last two weeks. The last time we saw him, however, was with Joe Biden in a bipartisan event, infrastructure event, picked opposite of the Republican clown show of electing a speaker. And if you notice during this debt ceiling debate, we've heard like Republicans are quietly working. And it seems to me that McConnell's strategy is to let McCarthy and his conference blow up and have nothing to do with it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It seems like he has washed his hands of Trump and of MAGA and, and, and the House. And I think that leaves him in a very interesting position. Now, the maps already look very good for Republicans in 2024, but... Donald, I mean, um, Mitch McConnell has been burned by Donald Trump for the last two cycles. Let's face it. In 2020, he probably should have become speaker. I mean, I'm sorry, leader, majority leader, if not for Donald Trump really messing up um, Georgia. And then in 2022, if not for the candidates backed by Donald Trump, he probably would have eked out two seats. It, it's not inconceivable. So now looking at 2024, I think he's like, you guys go have at it. I'm going to just keep doing what I've got to do. I'm going to let my members do what they've got to do, which will create a very interesting dynamic because in the Senate, they are aligned to be a little more bipartisan. And even if it's by only a fifth of them or, you know, a little more, but they they tend to go in that direction. And will they force some of the rational Democrats in the House conference along? So I'm watching his moves and how he's letting his conference act. That's a really good point. I was thinking the same thing about this whole debt ceiling. He's very happy to stand back and watch it blow up in Kevin McCarthy's face. Yeah, and yeah. not Biden's. And that's the important yeah. thing. Not, right, what does right. he do as yeah. well? I mean, McConnell is such an operator behind the scenes. What does he do? over the next year or so to, he's not going to dissuade Trump from running. No one can do that. But are there things McConnell can do with the levers available to him that he can pull or not pull to try to steer the party away from the, the <laughs> what happened in these last two cycles? I mean, it, it just a disaster snatching defeat from the jaws of victory two times in a row. I mean, McConnell just has to be, just has to be furious at this point, not to mention all the personal stuff, Trump attacking Elaine Chow. I mean, uh, you, you could not begrudge McConnell for just wanting to rid this earth of Donald Trump, but what can he actually do? I wonder going into this next cycle, which seems like it should be a pretty good one. The, the conditions are right for Republicans to do quite well. There's going to be a lot of knifing going on behind the well, scenes. It'll be interesting to yeah, see what of, he does. Of, of primary challengers. And I'm curious about mm. what happens with Scott from Florida. That's what uh, that's what to watch. You want to see where he's going? See what he does. Does he say, okay, I know you tried to challenge me and I know you ruined, you know, you picked some really bad candidates. You did a horrible job. But you know what? We've got to be a strong minority in the Senate. 
Or does he say, yeah. Yeah. don't mess with me. And you're going to find out in six months what That's happens good, good when point. you do. Uh, very quickly, I've got my eye on a uh, a case the Supreme Court has just granted cert to. They've agreed to hear it uh, this term, which is Counterman v. Colorado. Uh, Billy Raymond Counterman. Um, uh, I'm quoting from Fire's blog here. Uh, the Freedom uh, Foundation for uh, Individual Rights and Expression was convicted for stalking a local female musician. This was in Colorado, and uh, you know he sent her. Uh, Facebook messages in which he insinuated that he had seen her driving. Basically, it's a stalker case, right? The, what the court has agreed to rule on here is the question of true threats and how to um, judge them. So true threats, not protected speech, right? If you make a true threat uh, and you, know, you, you don't need to kill somebody, and in this case, he sent messages like die and fuck off permanently, um, that's not protected speech, right? Uh, the Supreme Court is going to rule on how to determine whether something is a, is a true threat, and this is going to have massive implications. So the question is, can, is there an objective, stand, you know, reasonable, reasonable person standard for determining whether something is a true threat? And that, to be clear, that's not subjective. Does the person uh, receiving the messages believe that they are being truly threatened? It's an objective, you know, reasonable person standard that you would have to prove in court, or does it require mens rea, guilty conscience standard, right? Or, or some kind of intent. Does the person making the threats believe, have to, you have, you have to demonstrate that they believe that they are, you know, uh, making a threat and they and intend to fall through or some, in some way. Um, it's a very, very interesting case for that reason, because of all of the sort of speech questions proliferating around, uh, you know, content moderation, uh, at the various social media platforms and, um, I think this is going to, I think it's very, very interesting. Uh, or maybe they'll come up with some novel way of determining. I don't know, but uh, keep an eye on that case. Uh, Ron, is that like the equivalent of, is that like, I mean, it's not the equivalent, but yelling fire in a movie theater? Like the uh, cause, like, yeah. does it build on that concept? So it does, it, it, it's, or, it all falls under First Amendment jurisprudence, but you can yell fire in a crowded theater. What you cannot do is falsely yell right. fire in a crowded theater. Right. And so, um, so yeah, it falls under the same first amendment jurisprudence, true threat being one sort of piece of, uh, speech that is not protected. Um, and, and given the implications for all the content moderation controversy that we're seeing, I think it's going to be consequential before we flip over to Politicology plus where we're going to talk about Marjorie Taylor green recanting her faith in Q. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 how conspiracy theories in general uh, are hurting democracy. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Susan? Well, it seems like Twitter's still here. So on Twitter, my handle is at DelPercyOS. And Andy? Also still hanging by a thread on Twitter at Andy Kroll. I'm on the other ones, Post and Mastodon, but I just can't quite figure them out. So I guess Twitter yeah. it is for now. I'm in that boat hanging on by a thread, mostly lurking, but occasionally looking at DMs on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. 
And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.